This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Jane Forsyth and Katie Balls. So today the nurses' union have announced that they will go ahead with strikes this winter and have even higher demands for wage increases. James, tell us what's happening. So what the Royal College of Nurses want is they want 5% above inflation. And obviously with inflation going up, that means that their pay demands is going up. I think these strikes are the most, are kind of complicated for the government because inflation is, looks like it is going to be elevated for quite some time. You know, the OBR are talking about, I think, 7.4% next year. There are going to be big demands from the public sector for pay rises that compensate them for that. The problem is that departmental budgets are set on the assumption that pay rises would be much lower than that, kind of you know, lowish single digits, because inflation was much lower at the time. And so, I mean, I mean it's a kind of reminder of how difficult inflation is. I think that, you know, it's also worth noting that the NHS was one of the few public services that in the autumn statement were, were given more money, the NHS and education, to try and compensate for inflation. And I wonder whether some of that might go towards dealing with the fact that, the, you know, I suspect the government will need to move off its current pay offer. But I can't see the idea of inflation plus 5% as possible. But I think the politics of this is very interesting now. The Royal College of Nursing are keen to stress that this won't affect emergency care. But what it will do is it will compound the backlog problem, which, you know, there are now already 77 million cases on the waiting list. I mean, you know, it's not going to help deal with that problem, these strikes. Katie, the Shadow Health Secretary West Streeting has wasted no time in kind of attacking from the Labour perspective. Do you think that even with the additional money for the, from the autumn statement, the Conservatives are still having difficulty coming across as the defenders of the NHS? So I think there's difficulty on both sides here. Now, Labour have been in quite a tricky position on the strikes, where if you think about the past few months, Keir Starmer's line on picket lines, the idea that the Shadow Cabinet should not be joining them and then there was a bit of grey area Sam Tarry obviously lost his job after appearing on but they said that was more because they thought he was freelancing on Labour policy in an interview as opposed to their act so it's been one where as much as Labour wants to sound as though they're on the side of workers when you actually try and pin them down in the details it's not clear what pay rises they would offer and of course because they are in opposition despite the fact that all the polls suggest they would have a large majority they're not under as much pressure of course as the government to, to outline their offer I think one of the difficulties for the government is if you look to the autumn statement where more money was announced on the NHS well Quickly, you had NHS figures saying it is it was not enough and it was not the full amount that they had been pushing for. So there was a backlash there. But more so, I think on public sector pay, the government made the decision to, obviously, for benefits to rise in line with inflation. And that was something that when Liz Truss, if you remember, during her spell as prime minister, refused to commit to, you had members of her cabinet penning more and others freelancing saying that the government should do this so that so there was support for that but i think as soon as you do it it means that public sector workers will say well if you're going to rise benefits in line with inflation which of course something you can do for the most vulnerable those who many of them perhaps are not in a position to boost their income in other ways that does make it, i think politically harder for the government to then say while we're doing that actually public sector workers you will not get you know mm. a significant pay rise so I think the autumn statement, in a way, has 
has has not made it easier for the government. But again, in this position Rishi Sunak finds himself in, everything you do has a problem. But I think that is one of the effects if you are going to do, if you're going to be pensions and benefits and line inflation, I think for, for workers and public sector pay, it, it does add to the argument. Well, James, just on that, I mean, the government's obviously keen to fill this one million vacancies in the jobs market. They're keen to get more of the five million out of work back into work. I mean... It is mixed messaging, isn't it? I mean, if you if you increase people's pay in the public sector and, and the private sector, obviously less influence over that, that will get people back into work. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, one way to deal with vacancies is to make work more attractive through higher levels of things. I mean, uh, through higher levels of pay. I, I think in terms of moving people back into work, I mean, I think the kind of the challenge for the government is they kind of in the 2010s they did do this quite successfully and quite well. I mean, that's a lot of that is about conditionality in the, in the benefit system. Some of it is about tackling the NHS backlogs, which I think is, is, is part of the problem. Uh, and, and then I mean, there is, a, there is a, a very subtle and complicated question about how you handle mental health and work. Because I think there is, I think that while as with physical health conditions, if you need a hip replacement, obviously going into work is not a practical thing. I think there are some people who think there was some regarding mental health actually a job a greater sense of routine and security could could be helpful but obviously that that is that's a very delicate area than talking about it in a broad brush way is of, of limited use so i i think that there are serious chances that. i think the reason they decided to upgrade benefits and pensions in line with inflation obviously all the politics around the, the triple lot but i think there's also a view that, that you know these people don't have the ability to increase their income right and that you know where and and you know it's worth thinking back as, as, as katie said at tory conference the row was because liz trust wasn't committing to raising benefits in line with inflation so I, th- I think it is a reminder of how difficult inflation makes politics how scratchy it makes it and katie speaking of liz trust she's been out of government for gosh what a month now but she's now back in the headlines today for a possible brewing rebellion on the backbenches Yes, so this is Simon Clark's amendment, which is to lift the de facto ban on new onshore wind farms where there is community consent. And this is the news that when it comes to the backbench rebellion for, for this amendment, Boris Johnson and this trust are set to join it. I think this is interesting for a few reasons. I think first off, while I do think politics has calmed down uh, in recent weeks since Rishi Sunak took over, Autumn st- Statement had support and so forth, this is still a party that's hard to govern. And I think the fact you have a former prime minister already mm. saying they're going to rebel on an issue does just just point to, to how hard this party is to, to whip and so forth. And then you also see from Boris Johnson, this push. I, th- I do think that if you look at Boris Johnson's time as prime minister, I think it's fair to say that this trust in six weeks had a lot going on, much of which was her own making. But Boris Johnson, of course, won that majority and... I think had he wanted to do this, you know, there could have been a push to. So it raises some interesting questions. Is I think when it comes to this this piece of legislation, because it started, and the reason Simon Clark came up with this amendment was to say, well, if you are going to have people like Theresa Villiers ultimately doing this NIMBY type amendment, trying to stop some of these housing targets, then why not have those who are pushing for growth mm. do their own amendment? So you've almost got the two tribes now latching onto this, trying to push their agendas through. In terms of what will get through, I think that this is something Labour will likely support. It could be the case that Simon Clark does have the numbers, mm. in which case it's another question for the WHIPS office in terms of how they want to approach it, and also for Michael Gove in terms of 
who can he talk down? Can you pick the rebels off? Because it's already becoming, I don't think so much a question of Rishi Sunak's leadership, though it does just show you how tricky it is for him to push things through with, with this party, but almost for the, the different sides of the party in this great planning debate, that there is now a fight from both sides when it comes to this piece of legislation. James, I mean, could Rishi Sunak be a bit more flexible on, on Shawin? I mean, I, I appreciate the NIMBY argument. At the same time, there are also polls that show that local communities agree with onshore wind if they can get discounting energy. And of course, this winter, that's more relevant than ever before. I, I, I think the devil is in the detail of the phrase community consent. I mean, if you if you think back to to fracking, which obviously played its role in, in, in this trust's downfall, the big issue there was how did you define community consent? And I think if you can come up with a proper definition of community consent, I mean, the danger is at times in the fracking debate, it seemed like community consent would be the energy company saying, well, we'll give everyone... Twenty pounds off their bill or fifty pounds off their bill, and and, we'll, and that that will tick the box of community consent. I mean, I mean, community consent has to involve the community's elected representatives, whether you know in local councils or the like. So I think the kind of, I mean, that that is the the challenge there if you can solve that. But you know, again, I think being a kind of theme of this podcast, it's worth remembering that the Tory backbenchers were unhappy about onshore wind. So I mean, I mean the, 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 this is a challenge. I mean, there is. Another debate to be had here, though, which is energy security at the moment, there is a particular premium on. Now, I think that some people would say that offshore wind has better long-term potential than onshore wind. You can you can do it at larger scale, simpler and all that. But, you know, if there are places where onshore wind can be done and people are happy for onshore wind to be done, there is clearly a rationale for that. James and Katie, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>